We can begin. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Nahmaduhu wa nasalli ala rasulihil kareem. Amma ba'd. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. And we seek blessings on the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. We are in the second section of our exploration of the Mishkat of Masabi. And, okay, pick up wherever it is you want. Okay, so we started with the first hadith, which was um, the hadith of intention by um, Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu. So um, we talked about the importance of intention, um, but some of the points that kind of continued in that chapter um, was sort of what we were building up on, where you said, you know, a person who might have multiple intentions, so long as their primary intention is towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and for his pleasure and love, then that person will be rewarded for their actions. Um, and so, for example, um, the Mishkat gave a, um, an example that a person might visit the mosque, uh, even though that's one deed, there's many intentions that prompt it. Um, so the person might earn different rewards for each intention. Um, and if a person performs a pious intention, like, for example, if he, um, <coughs> if he applies perfume on Fridays, he might have a lot of different reasons for doing so. Um, but he gets different rewards based on different intentions. Um, then there were a couple of other uh, rulings in this that I thought were very interesting. So some of the ones that I thought were like more interesting was that um, there are a couple of different conditions for an intention to be correct. Um, and there's four specifically that uh, is mentioned here. Number one, that the person should be Muslim. Number two, that the person should be able to distinguish between worship and non-worship. Number three, that the person must be aware of the importance of what he does. Uh, and number four is that he shouldn't do anything contrary to what uh, to the intention that he does. So, for example, if he worships someone other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then, that, then the worship that he had towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala becomes void. Uh, or, like, for example, if he breaks his fast or if he breaks his salah, uh, then it breaks that intention of whatever he was doing. <coughs> uh, then going off of that, um, it talks about, like, for a fard salah, the intention is formed for four things to offer the salah, to offer the fard salah, to specify the salah that is being offered, and to define oneself. Um, so I thought that was really important because uh, people, when they tend to just do the salah, they don't really like put all of that into their head. Um, and then going off of that is also like the what it says about fasting. So it says that uh, for a Ramadan fast or for like a supererogatory fast, um, the fasting is. Uh, you can make the intention from any time in like the night uh, until the afternoon, uh, until right before the afternoon, like midday, uh, and your fast. If you make your intention there, it'll count. Um, however, uh, if you're making up a fast, uh, yeah, if you're making up a fast, then it has to be like those fasts are not valid um, during the day. It can only be made during the night. So, uh, explain that point again. Yeah. So, the fasting in Ramadan. Um, it's, it says over here uh, in point eight of Mishkat uh, that like whatever kind of intention is formed, that fast will be counted in Ramadan if you're fasting in Ramadan. And then uh, if like if you're fasting in Ramadan, it can be formed. Your intention can be formed <coughs> from the night up until the afternoon before half of the day, mm -hmm. um, because in the Sharia the day begins with sundown mm -hmm. and then it ends with sun. Sorry, it ends um, mm -hmm. yeah with sunset. Then. Um, the same applies to supererogatory fasts. Um, however, uh, redeeming fasts of Ramadan, they must be made during the night. Mm -hmm. So those were a couple of things that I thought were really important from the first chapter. Meaning the it's the intentions for the redeeming yeah. fast. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
and then also like um, with Zeka uh, and other things uh, like another very big important point that uh, is in this chapter is like the the intention of Zeka that if anyone doesn't pay the Zeka willingly then the collector of the Zeka um, cannot collect it from him forcibly uh, which I thought was interesting because it showcases you know that the person must be, give it by their own intention. So that is a point that I think the, uh, I believe the assumption is that we are not living in Darul Islam. Yes. So remember we spoke about that last time. Yeah. And the reason I say this is a couple things. One, the ayah is hov, take it from them, mm-hmm. right? And and so this was essentially the first civil war after the death of the Prophet, peace be upon him. That there were a lot of, uh, after his death, there were a lot of tribal leaders who said, we are not paying zakats. And so Abu Bakr literally declared war on them. You know, uh, so, okay, continue. Okay, uh, and one point that I kind of um, just wanted to reflect on that is that wasn't part of the reason why they believed that they didn't want to like pay the zakat. Uh, part of it was due to they believed that that was like a tax or like that was for the Prophet Sallallahu himself. Uh, I'm not familiar with that part of the narrative. I've heard a number of different explanations given. I'm not familiar with that one, but Allah knows best. It's possible. Okay. Yeah. Um, so then, in addition to that, um, in addition to that, um, going on to the next part, which was uh, the part of faith um, with Haddathan al-Jibreel. So I'll just read the hadith in Arabic first, and then I'll sort of talk about the meaning. Um, so it was narrated by Umar ibn al-Khattab. Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu qal, بَيْنَمَا نَحْنُ جُلُوسٌ عِنْدَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمَ ذَاتَ يَوْمٍ اِطَّلَعَ عَلَيْنَا رَجْلٌ شَدِيدُ بَيَاضِ الثِّيَابِ شَدِيدُ السَّوَادِ الشَّعْرِ لَا يُرَى عَلَيْهِ أَثَرُ السَّفَرُ وَلَا يَعْرِفُهُ مِنَّا أَحَدٌ حَتَّى جَلَسَ إِنَا النَّبِيِّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمَ فَأَسْنَدَ رُكْبَتَيْهِ إِلَى رُكْبَتَيْهِ وَوَضَعَ كَفَيْهِ فقال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم الإسلام أن تشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وأن محمد رسول الله وتقيم الصلاة وتؤتي الزكاة وتصوم رمضان وتحج البيت إن استطعت إليه سبيلا قال صدقت فعجبنا له يسأله ويصدقه قال فأخبرني عن الإيمان قال أن تؤمن بالله وملائكته وكتبه ورسله واليوم الآخر وتؤمن بالقدر خيره وشره قال صدقت قال فأخبرني عن الإحسان قال أن تعبد الله كأنك تراه فإن لم تكن تراه فإنه يراك قال فأخبرني عن الساعة قال من مسؤول عنها بأعلم من السائل قال فأخبرني عن أماراتها قال أن تريد الأمة ربتها وأن ترى الحفاة العرات العالة رعاء الشاء يتطاولون في البنيان ثم أغلق فلبثت مليئة يا عمر أتدري من السائل قلت الله ورسوله أعلم قال فإنه جبريل أتاكم يعلمكم دينكم وفي رواه رواه مسلم ورواه أبو هريرة مع اختلاف وفيه وإذا رأيت الحفاة العرات السم البكمة ملوك الأرض وفيه خمس لا يعلمهن إلا الله ثم قرأ إن الله عنده علم الساعة وينزل الغيث الآية متفق إليه. so سيدنا عمر بن الخطاب رضي الله عنه narrated that one day we were sitting with the prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم when a man suddenly came there. he was clean and tidy in a very white dress and his hair was very black. no mark of travel could be detected on him and none of us knew him. He came and sat so near to the Prophet ﷺ that his knees touched the Prophet ﷺ's knees. He placed both his hands on his two thighs. He said, O Muhammad, tell me about Islam. The Prophet ﷺ said, Islam is that you testify that no one is worthy of worship besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that Muhammad ﷺ is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's messenger. You should establish salah, pray the zakat, 
fast in the month of Ramadan, and if you have the means to that, make the Hajj to the house. He said, you have spoken the truth. Umar ibn, uh, Umar ibn al-Khattab said, we were surprised at this man asking and at the same time asserting that the Prophet spoke the truth. The man asked again, tell me about Iman, faith. The Prophet said, that you believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, his angels, his books, his messengers, and the last day, and that you believe in fate, that good or bad, that good or bad are both decreed. The man said, you have spoken the truth. Then the man asked, now tell me about Ihsan. The Prophet said, It is that you worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as though you see him, and that it is not possible uh, that then he sees you. He then asked, Tell me about the hour. The Prophet said, The one who is asking the question knows no more than the one who is answering the question. The man, the, the man then said, So tell me about its signs. He said that the female slave will beget her master, and that you will see the barefooted, naked-bodied, poor mendicants and shepherds living arrogantly in large, luxurious mansions. Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab said, The man went away, and I waited some time before the Prophet said to me, O oh Umar, do you know who the questioner was? I said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his messenger know best. The Prophet said, He was Jibreel and he came to teach you about your religion. And Sayyidina Abu Hurairah has a difference in words. He quotes the Prophet in the end as saying, When you see the barefooted, naked-bodied, deaf and dumb people rule on earth, it will be the last hour, one of the five things that no one but Allah knows. Then he recited, Surely the knowledge of the hour is with Allah alone. And he sends down the rain and he knows what is in the wombs. And no person knows when he will earn, what he will earn tomorrow, and no person knows in what land he will die. Surely Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the knower and the aware. And this is in Surah Luqman, Ayah 34. So, this hadith was also in uh, the 40 hadith Nawi that I was studying. So, uh, I have some experience with this hadith. But the commentary is that, first of all, it's very important to see that uh, Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu an as well as the other companions at that time, they realized that the person himself was special, whoever asking, whoever was asking the Prophet <coughs> And the way they were able to figure that out is because Umar ibn al-Khattab, he notices that the person didn't have any signs of travel, but because of that, if he was someone from around the area, then they should have known him. But the fact that they didn't know him and the fact that he didn't have any signs of travel means that um, he originated from somewhere where they couldn't figure out. So right away they knew that this person was special. Then the second thing that um, is very important is that um, first Jibreel asked the Prophet about Islam. And the Prophet tells him about the five pillars, Shahada, Salah, Salam, Zakah, and Hajj, um, sort of to like as a foundation of what's important uh, for a person to believe in, what a person should practice. And then Jibreel confirms that. Um, so basically Jibreel is asking these questions and the Prophet is answering them so that the companions around will get a better understanding of the religion. Then Jibreel asks about Iman and the Prophet says that it's the six pillars of Iman to believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the messengers, uh, the books, uh, the angels, um, and the uh, the day of judgment and al-qadr, uh, destiny. And once again Jibreel says you are right. Then um, 
Jibreel asks about Ihsan and the Prophet he says it is to believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as if you can see him because even if you can't see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sees you. So it showcases this sincerity with which we should make our actions after we have um, after we have belief and after we um, uh, have implementation that we should have sincerity in every act that we do. Then Jibreel salam asks about um, the last day, as-sa'ah, and the Prophet wasallam says that he doesn't have any knowledge on it. Uh, and then Jibreel salam asks about the signs of the Day of Judgment, <coughs> and the Prophet wasallam lists two major signs, um, one being that um, a female servant will uh, will beget her master, and the second that the um, the barefoot Bedouins of Arabia will um, will be living in high uh, high mansions, like tall mansions, tall skyscrapers. Um, so it's very important. It's very interesting to see like that some of those signs already are coming true, um, and that the purpose of that dialogue was to allow the companions to uh, to participate in gaining that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, then, furthermore, um, the next hadith. Uh, oh, before we go to that one, let's talk more about uh, let's talk more about this one. So there's six parts of this hadith. Uh, the first part is the entry. Uh, the next three are the are, or the next four are the questions, and then there's this exit. Okay. Yeah. And so, so what's the setting when this uh, event is taking place? How would you answer that? Yeah. Um, they're sitting around the company of Rasulullah. Yeah. So it was the common practice of the Prophet, peace be upon him, to after Fajr. Uh, you know, there, then there'd be some recitation of Quran. We're all prescribed this is in Surah to to recite Quran after after Fajr, uh, and then he would sit with the companions and talk uh, and ask them um, about life or just chat, and that was especially often on on Thursdays. But I don't think it was even remotely limited to Thursdays, and so this is where people would ask him about their dreams. And, and such, or he would ask them, you know, who, who, who is fasting today? Uh, Abu Bakr raises hand. Who here has given sadaqah today? Now keep on, this is fudger time, and Abu Bakr would raise his hand. Uh, who has joined a funeral procession? Abu Bakr would raise his hand. Now it could be that all this stuff happened in what we would call, you know, that, you know, just before dusk, all these things happen. Or it could be like the point you mentioned before, that the Islamic day is is basically Maghrib to Maghrib. And so it could be that in our language, uh, Abu Bakr had all these things the previous night. Allah knows best. And then, and so that was the common practice. And then along comes this man, and just like you mentioned, um, nobody knew who he was. So the community is tight enough that everybody recognizes everybody else. Uh, especially Omar notices everyone else. He's the one who's doing the primary narration. And, and, and so if they don't know who he is, he should be traveling. But they're in the desert, so he should have some sand or dust on him. He's got nothing. Jet black hair, blazingly white clothing. Okay. And so uh, it was a casual moment that suddenly has become really peculiar. Okay. And then, as you described, he walks, he walks through the crowd, and then he sits next to the Prophet, peace upon him, so that their knees are touching. And so imagine they're essentially face-to-face. Uh, 
and yet their volume of speaking is loud enough so that everybody else can hear. Um, Omar can hear it because Omar is next to the Prophet, peace be upon him. Abu Huraira is probably a little bit further away. So then maybe it's possible that the other people are not hearing this. But they're all seeing something going on. And then he asks the, the first question, what is Islam? The Prophet, peace be upon him, answers with the five pillars. What is Iman? The Prophet, peace be upon him, answers with basically basic elements of Aqidah. And then, what is Ihsan? To worship Allah as though you see him, uh, for he sees you. And then, when is the hour? Now, think of each of these in one way as a level of faith, in another way as a dimension to add to your faith. Okay? So, level of faith meaning everyone is, the common Muslim is at the Islam level. And how do you translate the word Islam? What are different ways to translate it? Uh, submission uh, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's orders. Mm -hmm. um, peace um, as a result of that submission. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, an implementation of belief. Um, yeah, so all these things would work. If we're speaking about the word itself, it means to enter into peace. And then in the context of, 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 um, of Islam... The religion, the belief system, the deen, then, yeah, submission to Allah, obedience to Allah, and so forth and so on. And if we speak of it in the context of this narration, it's also giving us a hint of how most people uh, practice and learn their Islam. It's you're submitting to something, okay? meaning the goal is submission to Allah, but you're practicing what you're practicing because something outside of you is compelling you to do so. So it could be the book that is saying do X, Y, Z, and thus you're doing it. The book is outside of you. It could be uh, the day of judgment. The hope and fear that you have is inside of you, but the day of judgment's in the future. And so again, you're, you're surrendering. It could be because you're being told in Muslim culture, this is what Muslims are supposed to do. That's how most people are practicing their Islam, right? Most people are not you know, saying, okay, this ayah says X, therefore I must do X. So if you ask the common Muslim man or woman, um, you know, are you supposed to wear hijab? I mean, the official uh, answer is, is fard, but can the common Muslim tell you where uh, it says that? Or you have to speak truth. Can the common Muslim tell you where it says that? Um, or the fact that you have to pray. I mean, we're all familiar with, you know, over and over again in the Quran, but without looking, can someone tell me where? And usually the answer is almost always no, because you're learning it from your culture, your community, your family and such. But the point is you're surrendering. Okay. And then Iman, what does Iman mean? Iman, we often translate as faith. It means to have such a level of security that people feel uh, secure by, uh, by being in your company. And so what does this mean? It means that now it's coming from within and it's radiating outwards. Okay. So the person at the Islam level uh, is praying because they have to. The person at the Iman level <clears throat> cannot not pray. They feel compelled to do so. Okay. And then Ihsan, 
by by worshiping Allah as though you can see Him, is now becoming nonstop communication with Allah. So another way to to appreciate this is think of du'a, okay, supplication. So if I am at the Islam level, then what are we saying? We're saying <laughs> that I'm making du'a. I'm hoping for Allah to answer it, but I'm not going to be surprised if it's not answered. Because okay. if I'm making a du'a, I'm actually asking Allah, here's how things normally operate. Can you make this slight change for me? Okay. Whether it's to get an A uh, on, on a test or a paper, or get married, have a child, etc., etc. That there's a couple possibilities for the way life is about to play out for me. I ask you to pick this possibility. Or the tendency of the life, and this matters to go left, I'm asking you to make it go right. Okay? If I'm at the Iman level, then what else has taken place before getting into the conversation about Dua is that my heart, my, I understand what my heart is seeking. Okay? So let me explain this point. When you're growing up in life, uh, your heart your behavior, everything you say, everything you do, including how you and I are sitting right now, is an interpretation of what our heart seeks. Okay? We're sitting in a, a particular way because it's comfortable. That's what our body seeks. But even our bodies, what it's seeking is a response to what our heart is seeking. Okay. And so, so as you get older, the distance between your what your heart is seeking and what you believe your heart is seeking begins to grow because you're adding layers in between it. So when you talk to, like, so I've taught, you know, mashallah all ages, when you talk to a five-year-old or an eight-year-old, their questions are super direct and, for our thinking, super profound. When I talk to someone who's in college, then odds are, you know, 25% of the questions they ask will be questions I've never had before. 75% of the questions I've been teaching long enough will be repetition. If I'm talking to a crowd that's all in their 60s, then odds are 95, 98% of the questions they ask me, I've already had 100 times. Okay. And because they've all grown up in the same society, they all have the same internal layers, and they're all thinking the same way. They have the same filters. So now let's apply that to du'a. Uh, so consider this example, and my students have heard this from me many, many times. Let's say you're driving, you have to get to work, and you have to get to work at 9 o'clock, and you're running late, and you're making a du'a the whole way, Ya Allah, get me to work on time, get me to work on time, get me to work on time. Why do I want to get to work on time? Um, because you don't, like for example, you don't want to get yelled at by your, by your um, yeah. boss, and then you don't want to get like in trouble as a result of that, mm -hmm. or lose your job potentially. Mm -hmm. Like it, it keeps going down like a list. Mm -hmm. Mm. Have we already done this exercise together? Yeah. Well, no, we haven't done it together. I just heard it in a football. Okay, okay. Yeah. It wasn't my football, was it? No. Oh, man. I mean, someone's stealing it. <laughs> someone's stealing from me who, and I stole from someone else. So, yeah. So, this is the exact point. That, that if I am praying to Allah, Ya Allah, give me to work on time, and I have to be at work at 9 o'clock, what happens if I get to work at 8.58? Was my prayer answered? Yeah. Seems like it. Yeah. What happens if I get to work at 9 o'clock? Seems like my prayer is answered. Yeah. What happens if I get to work at 9.05? Depends. Your prayer can still be answered. So the prayer of my tongue was not. Yeah. But as we got closer to my heart, let's say I got to work at 9.05, but I didn't get yelled at. Maybe nobody noticed. 
So we, what we described as one step closer to my heart, because I don't want to get in trouble, it looks like the prayer got answered. Or, you know, like we're saying, I don't want to lose my job, I don't want to lose my income. The closer we, to get to my heart, I keep asking why, 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 why? And every prayer, almost at the core, you're usually asking Allah, Ya Allah, give me some rahmah. A step away from the core, it might be give me some rizq, which is our request for rahmah. But the real prayer is, Ya Allah, bring me closer to you. That is essentially every prayer of your heart, which is itself interpreted by us seeking his rahmah which itself is either, please give me your risk, please remove this burden, etc., etc., And then it, then it translates more and more as we get further and further from the heart to the tongue, then it becomes something physical in this world. So when I'm asking Allah, Ya Allah, get me into med school, that's prayer of my tongue, but it might actually be me saying, Ya Allah, please make my risk be at a particular level which is really saying, Ya Allah, please give me rahmah over the course of my life. And my interpretation of that manifesting is get me to med school. And the reality is please bring me closer to you. Okay. So <clears throat> the person who has reached the point of Iman, they understand what their heart is seeking. So they're still praying, Ya Allah, get me to work on time, because you're still encouraged to pray for everything, including your shoelaces. But they know what their heart is really seeking is, Ya Allah, you know, please just give me a rahmah. You know, please bring me closer to you. Okay. And so they're praying with the assumption their prayer is going to get answered. Okay. But they know that the tongue is a different prayer. The tongue is like a final interpretation. Because okay. um, I might be praying, Ya Allah, give me a work of time. Don't let me get in, in trouble at work. Please don't let this happen. Okay. And what does the Prophet, peace be upon him, say about the prayer of the tongue? is either Allah will give it to you, or instead he's going to remove a burden, or he's just going to give you what you're seeking, the Akhira, and you will wish all your prayers were answered in the Akhira. Prayer of your heart is always answered. Prayer of your tongue, maybe in this dunya, maybe not. Prayer of your heart is always answered. And so the person of the level of Iman is making the dua knowing it's been answered. They may not see where though. Okay. Or they may not see how. So this is uh, Zechariah praying to Allah Ta'ala. He sees Maryam and he sees her Iman and how life is manifesting. And so then he goes to the member and he's praying for a son. So he's made the prayer to Allah for a son. And the answer he's receiving is that, all right, you're going to have a son. And then he's saying, how am I going to have a son? Okay. Meaning he already knows the prayer is getting answered. Okay. But the how, that he doesn't know. I mean, and the response is, is easy for Allah, and, and here's a sign to reinforce you. Um, you're not going to talk. Um, Maryam is, as far as we know, not praying for a son. Okay? But she's still asking, how is this going to happen? Okay? Meaning, they're both saying, in the sunnah of Allah, it doesn't follow. The sunnah from Allah, of Allah, in the case of, of having a child, for both of them is, you have to have a husband and wife, they have relations, and then she gets pregnant. And then Zechariah says, well, I'm old, my wife is barren. Okay. In the sunnah of Allah, this does not seem to happen. But he still knows the prayer is going to be answered. 
Maryam uh, is not even making the prayer, but she's still saying the Sunnah of Allah, this doesn't, uh, how does this work? And so she's told it's easy for Allah, which could literally just mean be, and it is. Okay. But the point is that the person at Iman, they understand what their heart is seeking. So one way to get from Islam to Iman is to understand what your heart is seeking. And one of the key ways for that is by tightening your taqwa. So think of taqwa as putting a belt around yourself. You're tightening and tightening your belt. Okay. And then ihsan reaches the point where everything is nonstop communication. Okay. So now let's make that point further. That if I'm at, if right now me speaking to you, I'm at the Islam level, then what we're saying is I'm talking to you as you. Okay. And whatever little bit I know about you, and I should not be making any assumptions about you, but I might know more and more I know about you, I'll have a better sense of how you operate. Same thing, you with me. Okay. Uh, uh, at the Iman level, when I'm talking to you, it is also reminding me of Allah. Okay. So let's shift uh, to another exercise, which again, you might have heard from me or someone else. Uh, I'll give you this short exercise and you tell me the first thing that comes to mind. So you grew up in the suburbs, right? Your yep. whole life? Okay. Two, sen two, two sentence scenario. I'll just say it. I'll clap my hand. Tell me the first thing that comes to mind. You're walking down the street. You see a leaf falling from a tree. First thing that comes to mind. Don't think. Stop. You already started thinking. First thing that comes <laughs> to mind. A tree. I'm sorry? A tree. Okay. All right. So most people will say fall. Okay. Yeah. With a leaf falling from a tree. And, and so why did you think of a leaf? Why did you think of a tree? Uh, because that's where leaves fall from. Yeah, okay, so that's what we are conditioned. That's where you find a leaf. Why do so many people say fall? Um, because you said if a leaf falls from the tree, then they'll say fall. Yeah, yeah. so fall, autumn. That we're socially conditioned that a leaf falling is an ayah of fall. Do you also hear this in a chutbah too? <laughs> Who's this khutib? Okay, <laughs> yeah. So, so it's, uh, you, this becomes an ayah. And when we're at the Islam level, we are also essentially surrendering to what our society is teaching us. That we're taking everything as an ayah of something. As I get to the level of Iman, everything becomes an ayah of Allah. So if I'm at the level of Iman and I'm teaching you, I'm talking to you, etc., I'm being reminded of Allah. Okay. As opposed to whatever I'm being reminded of if I'm at the Islam level. Might be interpreting what you're wearing. I might think, okay, he's an undergrad because he's dressed like this. You know, the, okay, maybe he just woke up. Maybe etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, right? Yeah. Um, and at the ihsan level, it's all communication. So to make that point, we're saying that if I'm at the ihsan level, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to Allah. Or if it's easier to understand, I'm talking to the one that Allah has put before me. So an easy, another easy example to make sense of this is that I'm walking down the street and a homeless person or seemingly homeless person comes to me and asks me for money. If I'm at the Islam level, I'm going to look at that person the way society is conditioned for me to look at that person. Maybe he's down on his luck. Maybe he's lazy. Maybe he's drunk. Whatever the case may be. Whatever society's taught me, that's how I'm going to interpret this person. If I'm at the Iman level, I'm going to see this person that's going to remind me of Allah. How will that affect my behavior? It'll make you do whatever Allah subhanahu whatever um, you would do to make Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala happy with you or closer <laughs> to you, meaning yeah. that you would be more generous. Yeah. Inshallah, um, if I'm thinking of Allah, 
then I'm going to have higher consciousness of Allah, which means it's going to affect my conduct, erring more on the side of being more upright, perhaps, inshallah, if I'm capable of more giving. But now, if we're at the Ihsan level, I'm not only being reminded of Allah, I'm understanding Allah Ta'ala has just put this person in front of me. And then how do I respond? With utmost uprightness. Yeah, because now it's as though Allah Ta'ala is putting this person in front of me, asking me through this person, how do you respond? Okay. And an easier scenario to understand that is if a hater comes up to you and is vilifying you, vilifying your family, vilifying any of those, but especially the Prophet, peace be upon him. But at the Islam level, I might respond to the way society is telling me, which could be I get upset and, you know, comes to blows or what have you. Iman level, I'm being reminded of Allah, which means it's going to affect my conduct. If I'm at the Ihsan level, I'm seeing this person as though Allah tells you just put this person in front of me. Which means then, inshallah, I'm probably actually going to be much more calm. Okay. So when we're speaking about levels of, of, of Islam, levels of belief, all of these are stages I can reach as I'm aspiring to get closer to Allah. Okay? But then there's also a deadline, that, which is my death. And so that gets us into the fourth question. So the fourth question is asking about the hour. But the hour is twofold. What is the hour? What is the end of the world? But also, what is the end of us? Okay? And so the first answer to that is, okay, only Allah knows. And no one knows the question, doesn't know any better than the questioner. Now, it's also interesting about if we think of all the different narrations about end times, the world that they are describing is a world that's backwards. Okay, so mother gives birth to her master or her mistress. Naked, uh, barefoot shepherds, dumb and blind, are, you know, making, constructing tall buildings. Everything is literally backwards, right? Men dressing like women, women dressing like men. Everything's backwards, right? And so, so, so how does that form? That is also giving us the opposite taking place. Because for me to go from Islam to Iman to Ihsan, meaning for me to get closer to Allah, one of the central things that has to happen is that my nafs or the control of my nafs over me has to shrink. Okay? But what if I'm not going through that process, what will probably happen in a person's lifetime, as well as generation to generation, the dominance of the nafs is going to grow. So a way to think about this is on days where you have a full schedule. So today, mashallah, I have a 9 to 9 schedule. I got on campus at about 9 o'clock. My last appointment officially ends at about 9 o'clock. Okay? And that assumes there's nothing else after. Uh, those days feel full. Okay? If I had the day off... Very often, especially if I had multiple days off in a row, if I'm not doing work, then the day literally feels like it was two days long. Two hours long, I should say. Two hours long. It flies by. Okay. And that is the case when I'm following what my nafs wants. Sleep, relax, eat, those things, nothing productive. But what also happens with the nafs is that if I start obeying my nafs, it gets stronger. Okay. And as it gets stronger, it's saying, feed me, feed me, feed me. And it can reach a point where I'm not satisfied with the halal. I'm going to the makruh. And then I'm not satisfied with the makruh. Feed me, feed me, feed me. But then I start going into the haram. But what happens is I start going into the makruh and the haram. 
I start getting dissatisfied by the halal. Which means me as a person, I start turning upside down. And for a college student, this is actually common. And it's not, a, it's not moving from halal into makru, but when your sleeping schedule turns upside down. You know, especially if you start hanging out with people. And then you start staying up later and later and later. And then you might stay up for fudger and then, oh, you have 8 o'clock class, you got to go to class. You might not go to sleep till much later. Okay. And so your schedule literally starts turning upside down to the point that having a normal schedule starts becoming repulsive for your body. Or what you'll watch with an alcoholic is in the process of starting to drink and the evolution sometimes over years uh, into alcoholism is that the person, if you give that person orange juice, they're not going to like it. They, the only thing that tastes good for their tongue is booze. If you give them an apple or orange juice or something, it's, they actually find it repulsive. So now think about that at a societal level. What is one of the signs of end times? A year is going to feel like a month, a month is going to feel like a week, a week is going to feel like a day, right? And whatever that means, Allah knows best, but a common way that happens is because people are driven by their nafs. Because what's happening with your nafs, you're just thinking about yourself, and time flies by. If you're working, your focus is on something other than yourself, and it makes it easier for time to go slow. And then all the other things that are happening are literally the manifestation of people driven by their nafs. It's literally an upside-down, backwards world. Okay. So, so that is the, the ultimate uh, procession of life. Either I am actively trying over the course of my life to get closer to Allah, or my nafs is guiding me in what to do. And that is me in my own individual life, and then that's me in terms of the generations that follow me and, or our society itself. And so that becomes the end point. Okay. And so then getting into, I mean, we're not, we don't need to go through the details of the narrations he specifically gave. But then Jibreel leaves. Okay. <clears throat> and so another, another point is that what, what are the steps of his departure? He leaves. What I always enjoy thinking about is, okay, the second he stepped out of the masjid, did he go into angelic form? Because were there people outside? What do they see? I think that's fun to wonder about. <coughs> but not central to the lesson. And <coughs> the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon now explains what just happened. Okay, And Omar gives the proper adab response. Hey, Allah and his messenger know best. And so that's his way of saying what? I don't know. No idea what just happened. And then he says, As Jibreel came to teach you your religion, uh, hadith of Jibreel oh, um, before I make the point about the hadith of Jibreel so this is narrated to me from a friend of mine who got it from a, a mutual teacher that this happened toward the end of the life of the Prophet peace upon him and the Sahaba were now so pure that they're seeing Jibreel which I think is, is a really really wondrous uh, point that Omar is so pure at this point, Abu Huraira is so pure at this point, that they are with their own eyes seeing Jibreel a.s. Okay. But then, when he came to teach a religion, this hadith of Jibreel is often called Ummul Hadith. In the way, Al-Fatiha is Ummul Quran. And what do we mean? This is the mother of the Quran, mother of the hadith. This becomes the both the flashlight and the formula through which to look at the entire body of hadith. 
and thus uh, hadith uh, that are often put at the Islam level are what we would address in terms of fiqh. Hadith that are at the Iman level are what we would put in the realm of aqidah and kalam and usul al-deen and such. Hadith that are at the Ihsan level are the hadith that we put in the realm of tasawwuf. And so that's so what we're saying is everything that gets categorized primarily through those three, but it also includes the entry and the exit, which would be more, okay, here's just what happened. Okay, here's, here's some historical moments and such. And so that is giving us a sense of just how reality operates. The other point I was mentioning at the beginning was that um, either we look at these as levels of faith or dimensions of faith. And, and so the common approach in our community is you start with the realm of fiqh. So you'll hear people say, okay, I just don't feel it in my prayer. Okay. The fact that you're making your prayer is by definition spirituality. If you're doing it because you have to, then by definition that is spirituality. Okay. Because you don't have to do it otherwise. You might feel compelled because you might get in trouble by your parents or something, right? Um, so we, the common approach in our, in our community, in general, in our tradition, is you start with the action. And then you get into the meaning and the heart of the action through time and such. So you pray, why? Because you have to. But then your goal is to start developing your concentration and connection with, with Allah, the Prophet, peace be upon him, and so forth and so on. Some, however, need a little bit of start with Iman. Good. That they need the basic Aqidah and some consciousness of thinking about Allah Ta'ala. And so it's Islam, Iman, Ihsan is the common formula. Sometimes it's Iman, Islam, Ihsan. Okay. But again, all these are in the path to getting closer to Allah Ta'ala. Alright, having said that, any questions? Um, I had one question relating back to the concept of Dua, of dua always being accepted. Yeah. Um, so... Like, for example, there was a story um, of Musa salam when um, his people didn't have any, like, rain, or they, yeah. like, it was a period of drought for them, mm-hmm. and um, so Musa salam like, gathered all the people, and he said, we'll all make a dua together um, for, you know, like, rainfall, and so when they did it, you know, there wasn't any rainfall, so Musa yeah. salam asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, why isn't there any rainfall, and so... Uh, <clears throat> So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, there's one person among you who's like, who's a sinner, who's like not good. Um, so Musa islam went back and said, this is like what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said. So that sinner, like he was so scared about being exposed that he immediately repented at that point and they were given rainfall. Then Musa islam went back and he said, oh Allah, um, what happened? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, that person repented. And then when Musa islam asked like, can you tell me who that person is? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, no, I didn't tell you who that person was when he was sinning, so why would I tell you when he repented? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess my question then is, um, like, is that still, like that dua for rain, does that count still as a dua then of the tongue? And then the accepting of that dua was that the person becomes closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So I would say partially yes, uh, uh, but the reason partially is that the dynamics of dua for Bani Israel seems different than for the Ummah of Muhammad and, and the point being that um, in terms of the dua of Bani Israel, there seems to often be this case of a collective dua or even having Musa al-Islam pray for them. So that part I'd say Allah knows best. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But in principle, I'd still say the same thing, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Any other questions or thoughts? 
no. Okay, so let's stop right here, inshallah. And then um, uh, with the little time we have left, we'll do some uh, al-Ghazali. Right, subhanakallahu wa bihamdika, nashadu illa ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruka natubu ilayk, fa akhir da'wana, and alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.